It's a joy to open the Word together with you, and it has been um, uh, my joy throughout the week to look forward to being together and doing this together. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, our continuing study, Material Possessions, chapters 8 and 9, and then our subtitle really, How Can I Know If I Love Money? One of the funniest punchlines of a joke ever heard on old-time radio, I was doing a little bit of research on this just because we're distant, and of course you try to figure out what will communicate and what won't communicate from video and audio, but one of the best jokes ever heard on old-time radio consisted of nothing but silence. Jack Benny, an old-time comedian known as the cheapest, by his own evaluation, the cheapest man in the world, on one of his Sunday evening radio shows, told the story about being stopped on the street by a thief who said, your money or your life, to which followed a long silence. And of course, on radio in due course, with the captive audience there in the studio, they began to catch on because the silence went on longer and longer. And they began to laugh louder and louder. And finally, just in case there were a few people who didn't get the point, the thief persisted, come on, come on, your money or your life, to which Jack Benny replied, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. We continue today in our, this new section in Second Corinthians, which has to do with giving. And after looking briefly at the first five verses of chapter 8, just two weeks ago, in which we see Paul carried along by the Holy Spirit to help the Corinthian church, and of course every church on after that, see the New Testament model for giving which is put on display by the churches of Macedonia, which we know are the churches of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And we noted, as we were thinking uh, about what we saw in those first few verses, it would be easy to say, how do I get there? Because most of us would have to admit that we aren't there. Giving joyously and giving generously and looking for opportunities just to kind of sum up uh, Paul's evaluation there of the church, and we need grace that the church received and put on display to help us get there, and that's going to begin just obviously with a biblical view of material things. And uh, there are a lot of things that can trip us up on that uh, trip to faithfully handling what God has provided for us in money and finances. But when we think about the Macedonian believers that we started with two weeks ago, how they did what they were able, uh, it was proportionate, and even more than they were able, it was sacrificial. They chose to do it. It was faithful. And it ended up bringing great joy, and we will see tremendous blessing in using a portion of what they had to invest in eternal things. When we think about that type of model, we don't really see that too often in the church. And uh, there are a lot of reasons why we don't handle what we have the way we should. And we looked at some of those last week, and we won't go through those uh, again. But we were examining a very relevant question, is money moral or is having money moral? And we saw that money and possessions are neutral, and, and they have no morality, no corrupting power on their own. And that makes sense when... Uh, we understand that all material wealth is a gift from God's hand. And because he's the source of everything, and obviously he wouldn't then condemn us for having something for which he has provided us, and uh, whether it's small or a little bit or whether it's large, the continued principle in Scripture is how it's managed or how it is evaluated gives insight to the morality of the individual. And 
the way, in other words, that we evaluate and use material possessions is a barometer of our spirituality. And we're going to see that over and over in Scripture. We've already seen it numerous times. We'll see it again today because it is a recurring theme. It's one of the things that Jesus focused on so much. And God obviously desires for people to use those gifts for good. And we saw at the very end last time, not just uh, for the kingdom, so missions and outreach and support of the local church and helping those that have need, not just for that, but uh, because God knows by his very nature there are needs of food and there are needs of clothing and, and housing and some comforts in life. And God's not against you having what you need. And we saw from Luke 12 that very thing. He's chosen gladly at the very end of Luke 12, that passage. He's chosen gladly, he said, to give you the kingdom. He's not against us appreciating life, enjoying what he has made. He uh, has even bigger plans for your future than that. He just wants to make sure you love him and not those things, and you give him glory for what he has provided. And, and that you take what God has given then and you use it for good and you use it for his glory. And so he says, I know you need these things. I'm going to provide these things. And he says, just seek my kingdom first and foremost. Now, there's a passage we're going to start with this morning. And, and as we transition into our next part of really a foundation of biblical views, a biblical view of money and material things. And, and that title is, how do I know if I love money? And, and that topic will take us to looking at what Jesus had to say about that, and he had a lot to say about it, and so it's going to take us a little while to cover this sufficiently. But, but this passage we will start with gives us some more insight on the mind of God concerning material wealth. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy 6, if you would, and start in verse 17, and you're going to see we're going to pretty much stay here the whole time with a few illustrations, but I want you to see these passages. They're so important in understanding many of these basic things that we've begun to look at. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, along with the instruction to those who have wealth, there is this overriding intent to convey a real clarity about the source of all things and how we are, to, are we're supposed to think about them. Now, to underscore really a biblical understanding that material things are neutral and that God wants us to do good with what we've been given. But this phrase here at the beginning is just so important. It's, it says, God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, which will certainly include uh, money and, and things and possessions. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, uh, to whom uh, would Timothy be directing this teaching? Well, to the church specifically to Ephesus, but to the church. So obviously this instruction is for believers with material possessions. So we know exactly who the, uh, the, the audience is. And instruct is present active imperative. So in other words, as you know, this isn't a suggestion. And the imperative goes out to a certain group of believers. Who is it? Those who are, what does it say? Rich. That is the adjective phosios. 28 times we see that adjective used to indicate plentiful material possessions in the scripture. When it's used metaphorically, it just means to abound. So either way, uh, those who have, who are full or have to the full, uh, whatever it is, those who have plenty of what they need to live. And then this next world, where? In this present world. So the target is the church. Those who have much are the ones who are focused on and much in this present world. So living in this present world and using what the Lord has provided. So so the force of the word is not so much uh, that of the actual length of, of the period, this present world, but more on the period marked by spiritual and moral characteristics. So the translation should really be rendered age, and you might have that in, in your copy of God's word, but 
this present age. So those who are rich in this present age, it's translated age more than 20 times. If you remember Matthew chapter 20 or 12, verse 32, gives a good illustration. Uh, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Mark this, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to a demon is the unpardonable sin. You can't be forgiven of it now, and you won't be forgiven for it in the eternal kingdom. So to deny the Holy Spirit's part in salvation makes it impossible for it to be saved. And you, you can see that in the world, age is used correctly in this age or the one to come. And that's what we see in 1 Timothy 6.17. So, so the imperative instruction for believers who have been given the resources to be rich or well-off in this temporary church age, what are they supposed to know? They are, number one, not to be conceited. They're not to be conceited. And so uh, it's, uh, the basic idea there is you're not to think or act in such a way that is inconsistent with the reality of the source of your wealth. So we looked at that attitude several times last week, and Paul says, teach the church that they aren't to think about what they have as if they are the source or they are better than anyone or what anyone else may have. And so it's pretty important considering the company you'd be in if you were conceited. And then the second one is, or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, and, and the idea is to have faith in something that vanishes, something that's unstable, uncertainty at a lotes, which is a, it's a remarkable word. It's a compound noun. It says it's ah is negative and delos is evident, literally to fix their hope on something that appears not. So in other words, the riches of this age are uncertain. They may come a time when they appear not. So don't trust in them. So like the investment portfolios, perhaps of millions of Americans in the last several weeks. So we see that in this present age. It's the age we're in now. And, and so we're not to fix our hope on them or find our security in them, and we're not to be conceited or arrogant about them. So instead of finding security in the things we have, we're to find our security in God. And that's what it says at the very end of verse 17. You see, it instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So... Our security, our faith are always to be placed correctly on God. He isn't giving us material things. Mark this. He's not giving us material things so that he can be replaced as the source of our security with what he's given. He requires by way of the imperative um, to, for those who have something in this world to find their security in him. And, and what does he do? Uh, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So the same principle we see over and over again, this insight is here. Uh, number four, he gives all things generously and it all comes from him. And so he is very generous and he gives us whatever we have in order for us to what? Further insight in the mind of God, he wants us to enjoy it. So he wants us to enjoy it. And, and, and here's the thing. Are you okay with that? That's, that seems to really fly in the face of what maybe the, our topic last week where we kind of question whether money's moral or not. But the things that we have, the things we can do, uh, like take a vacation, buy a car, a table, or, or a couch, or enjoy the richness of God, all God has created. And, and the question really is, as you think about that, and sometimes people struggle with that, he's, he's given us richly, he supplies things, richly all things to enjoy. And the question is really, why do you think that God has uh, created a world like this? Why do you think God has given us a family and friends and beauty? See what? He's the one who created it. He has given a portion to each person, and he's given it, according to Paul, to enjoy. 
And if you are managing that right, and we looked at some of that last time, and we're going to look at more of it in the future, but if you're managing that right, and not presuming on God by what we saw last time, spending a dollar and 33 cents for every dollar he gives you, and if you're evaluating it like the Macedonian believers did, and, and if, if you are, as verses 8 through 18 and 19 tell us, and we'll look at that later, instruct them to those who are rich in this, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take up hold of that which is life indeed. So you don't have to feel badly then, right? You, you don't have to think uh, somehow that, uh, feel guilty that God has given you something and you're enjoying it. And I think that's the whole purpose that Paul is making sure Timothy understands this. He's teaching the church, those who are wealthy inside the church, wealthy in this present world, there's no condemnation there, and there's no problems there, see? So when you enjoy what he's created for you and, and given you, and in light of all that he's given you, both now and the future, number six, in response, give him thanks, see? Give him thanks. Thank him for the smiles on your children's faces when you, when you give them a present or something they've wanted for a long time, see? Um, God is very generous. Thank him for the wonderful trip or the time spent with family and friends. God is very generous. I, I think you can remember that God gave Job a lot of things, right? Um, and Job thanked God for all of it and, and richly enjoyed it. And then remember, if, if you remember the story, Job, Job was involuntarily pulled into proving a heavenly point, And everything he had was taken away. And then uh, Job really began to understand who God was and understand part of uh, God's nature. And then he became even more godly. And then God required him to take a vow of property, right? No. No. God blessed him even more. And you, and you could look at the patriarchs of Israel, and, and God blessed them with abundance, and, and he, 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 he uh, encouraged them and, 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 and made them abound. Uh, remember our passage of Deuteronomy 8.13? When your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold uh, multiplies and all that you have multiplies, right? So the idea is that there's going to come a point in time where they're going to be increasing in wealth, and that wasn't condemned. And and later in the days of Solomon, in First Kings chapter ten, verse twenty-one, uh, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, it says in verse twenty-one, were of pure gold. None was silver. And mark this: it wasn't considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Silver wasn't even valuable because there was so much gold. And Isaiah says later of Israel, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, he says, Their land has been filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures, and their land's been filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. And, and the Lord, if you read the rest of that passage, he's getting ready to chasten them, uh, perhaps like no other nation before or afterward. But is it because they're wealthy? No. Because why? Everything that they had came from God. It is because, though, that they're haughty and they're arrogant and they forgot God, and because they didn't honor him and they didn't thank him for all that he had, and, and, and they turned away from him and they were selfish and they didn't give what they were supposed to give and they didn't take care of those who had need and they just consumed it all on themselves and they used their wealth immorally and unwisely and they were corrupt and they used it, that wealth then that God had given them for good, they used it to propagate that corruption and that immorality to a higher level like we saw last time. So God wasn't going to punish them because they had something. He was going to punish them because they had begun to evaluate it incorrectly. They esteemed it higher than the Lord who'd given it, and they began to use it 
for immoral purposes. See, God is a God of giving, of goodness, of generosity, of faithfulness, and he demonstrates that over and over again in the Word of God. And so it's not surprising that he expects us to be that way too, and we're going to get to this later, but he expects us to be, as we talk about wealth and, and, and my family, he expects us to be that way too with what he supplied to us. The culture, for the most part, of course, uses the treasure that God gives them for wickedness and for self-indulgence, and we expect that, but it shouldn't be that way with those who are called by his name. Use some of what he's given to enjoy what he's made because that's precisely the reason why he gave it richly. And thank him and give him glory and avoid indulgence and selfishness and irresponsibility and be generous and ready to share. And, and this is kind of a stark illustration, but I think it proves the point. But if you were an executive in a large corporation and you handled the corporate funds the way some of you handle God's money, you may find yourself in jail for embezzlement. We are responsible, and I, I'm sure that you can see that with the scriptures we've looked at so far, and we'll, we'll get more, uh, more of a focus on that with how we do, what we do with what God has actually bring in, bringing into our home exactly. But knowing what you know now about wealth and material possessions, if your employer comes to you and he says, here's $1,000, I want you to use it for the benefit of the company, if that's the case, then you'd probably be pretty careful about how you spent that money because there would likely be a future accounting. If you did something selfish with it, it could cost you your job. And if you did something useful with it, something wise and beneficial, it could be a promotion. We're usually very careful with our earthly employer. But what about how we deal with God? People often say, you know, if I just had more, I would give more. You hear that a lot. If I just had more, I'd give more. But that is seldom true. And we looked at those statistics already. Jesus said, actually, in Luke chapter 6, verse 10, 16, verse 10, he said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So there's the question. If I had more, I'd give more. So Jesus right away comes to that question and deals with it directly. Verse 11 says, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, so now we're getting right down to the issue. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, which means there's a way to use wealth besides enjoying it richly for, as God has given it to enjoy, but there's a way to use wealth in such a way that God is honored. So if you've not been faithful to use unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And we're going to look more in depth at this in just a few weeks from now, so I don't want to tip my hand too much about this, but this has a very important application for us. But Jesus is responding to that very statement, if I had more, I would give more. But the question isn't, what would you do if you had more? The question is, what are you doing with the $10 you have right now? That's the question. And some have a lot of things because they've placed themselves in a pit of debt, and they spend the majority of their income retiring debt, and so they don't have much to give. And some don't have much because they squander it or they don't work hard and so they don't have much to give. And so in order to bring wisdom to bear on how you handle the income of your home and to deal with money and things the way God has instructed in his word, then you're going to have to go through this long process of getting out of debt and living within your means or both. And, and you have to realize that this is a spiritual problem and deal with it that way, see. If you've begun to do these kinds of things, if you're spending a dollar thirty-three or some portion more of a dollar for every dollar you bring in, then that's a spiritual issue. 
That's not a financial issue or logistics issue. That's a problem with how you're looking at it. And so you're going to have to begin to bring some wisdom here. And you're going to deal, have to deal with this as a spiritual thing. And you're going to have to say, okay, Lord, I've been doing this incorrectly and I'm wrong. It's been a sin and I don't want to do it like this anymore. So help me change. And that's the beginning. Now, I'd like you, you may want to jot some of these down. And if you've got your notes printed off, you can do this. But if not, just in the margin of your Bible, some of these are, 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 are important illustrations for us. And we'll just take a few minutes to do that. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, get a better handle on what can sometimes be a hidden problem. Here's the thing that we're going to look at today in just the time we have remaining. The writer of Hebrews says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now just obviously, your life should not be marked with the love of money. This type of desire, desire mars our testimony and it places us in very bad company. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, right at, tagged at the end of the verse we just looked at, Jesus ends his statement about faithfulness in little and he says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. So he makes it clear what he's talking about. Mark this. After he gets through saying this, Pharisees say something to him. They're lovers of money. They're listening to all the things he said, and they were scoffing at him. So if you think about the love of money, that puts you in very bad company. Particularly, it puts you in the company of the Pharisees. And why are the Pharisees included in the Bible? As I've spoken to you over and over again. So we'll know how not to act. So Paul points out this trend of the last days in, in 2 Timothy 3. Here's another great illustration. You'll see this. He, as, as everything continues towards the rapture, he tells Timothy, uh, realize something, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Now, we are in certainly the last of the last days. If, as Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, we keep moving towards those last days. In the last days, difficult times will come. Verse 2, what's it going to look like? Paul, well, here it is. For men will be lovers of self, and we can certainly see that. Narcissism, social media provides a great a great uh, basis for narcissism. Lovers of self, mark this, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. So it puts you then in the company of the Pharisees. It puts you in the company of the unredeemed, the unholy. It puts you in the company of the world and a lot of other very bad character traits. And, and it's the opposite of contentment. It, it may reveal that we don't trust God to take care of us or that we, or we get our joy and security from money rather than from him. Uh, another place, a great, great illustration is Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. I'll, and now people, some people read that and they say, well, try me. But scripture is always true, isn't it? Proverbs 15, 27, he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight: he who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So, so what is this love of money that the scriptures so often warn us about and warn us to avoid? A very familiar passage to us. Again, we're going to come back to 1 Timothy 6, but I'm going to back you up to verse 10 if you look there. It gives us a pretty straightforward definition along with some admonition of why our character should be free from it. 
So if this is so important, and Scripture tends to come back to it over and over again, our attitude brought to bear about the things that we have, how we look at it, how we esteem it, and the love of money is supposed to be absent from our lives, and to have the love of money in our lives, which is in very bad company, then it would seem like this is a pretty important thing to look at, and that's what we're going to do. So 1 Timothy 6.10, and I told you we'd come back to this. We looked at it the very first time we started this part of the series. We're going to come back to it now. Verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Here's the parallel. And some by longing for it. So the love of money and longing for it, then used in parallel there for it, for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that longing for it, present middle participle, orego minoi, it's the current action of reaching for something. Or it is translated desiring something or desiring to have, active, actively reaching for more. And it's a pretty simple definition. Perhaps hard to hear. It would be a life that has, as a continued activity, reaching for more and more material things. Now, just to be clear, just as a footnote, if you have a job as a stockbroker, if you're a money manager for a company, if you, if your job is to make your company profitable, and these jobs then require that you bring your expertise to bear to help your company do well, that's not the same as the definition we just looked at. Okay, You have an obligation to make the gospel look good by doing a good job with your responsibilities and make your company profitable, and these things you're supposed to do. So we're not talking about that. Okay, If your job is working for a company to help it profit, make, be profitable, you're supposed to do that, and you should be doing that. Our passage is speaking about personal habits, and it's easy to fall into that habit because these kinds of things are always in front of us. The habit of loving money, desiring more, see? It's a powerful force, and it's easy to be captivated by it. So the question is, how do I know if I am? Because with all the warnings in the Bible, how do I know if they may be indicating the outcome of my own life? And that's a legitimate question. We know that God's commands are for us and they're not for him, and they are meant to be obeyed and therefore our own good. So if we see this, let your character be free from the love of money, most of us say, well, I don't love money. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I think what we're going to look at here today will help you ask some questions to know for sure if the answer is, uh, yes, I love money or no, I don't. And we've looked at a few things that have been very important. We've learned so far that everything belongs to God and all that comes to us is really his. And we've learned that he then is the one who gives the power to get wealth. And he can give it, as we saw just, just briefly before, we're going to see it more in the future, he can give it to whomever he wants, however he wants to give it. And we know that what he gives, it's okay to enjoy. We just saw that this morning. And it's one of the purposes for his generosity is so that we can enjoy it. Enjoy it. He wants us to give him thanks. Wealth is neither moral nor immoral. It's neutral. He expects us to be generous and sacrificial with it. And because this is the case, then wealth becomes the stewardship, a test of morality. We understand those principles so far, and there'll be more for us. But let's look at a few questions that can help us identify whether we are indulgent and whether we're self-absorbed, which can be symptoms that we love money. And we're going to use some verses from our familiar passage to draw these questions out, and then we'll start to wrap up for the day. Now, here's the thing. I want you to look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. And so... I want you to listen to these questions, and you would need to answer yes to all of these questions, eight of them, and there's no special number eight. It's just as we observe this, these questions lend themselves to the text, and so I want you to look through these, and these are in your notes, and I want you to answer them honestly, and you should be able to answer yes to all of these things honestly. 
So let's look at the first one. Verse Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Pause right there. Here's your first question. Do you agree that everything you possess comes from God? That's your first question. That's an easy one, I think. And then the second one gets a little more difficult. Look at verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Would you be content with just those things? The necessities of life. And that second one particularly is not an easy answer. And the level of income and wealth are really irrelevant in answering that question. Because you can have a lot and really quail at the thought of being reduced to just this. Or you can have very little and be in a situation to be very dissatisfied with your lot in life. Either way, the answer would be no. And just to supplement that just a little bit with the synthesis, with a similar question, we're just going to just briefly look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, which gives us kind of a little, a little bit different angle on it, but allows us to ask a different question. In this passage, Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And here's your question, beloved. If your situation will never change from the way it is right now, are you okay with that? So first question, do you agree that everything you possess comes from God? Number two, would you be content with just the things, the necessities of life? And number three, if your situation will never change, are you okay with that, wherever you are? And I begin, I believe again, the answer may have very little to do with your current level of wealth and everything to do with how you evaluate it. But if where you are now is where the Lord will allow you to stay for the remainder of your life. Will you fight against that, or will you be content with just that? Now back to 1 Timothy, look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So here's question 4. Have you been able to put away from yourself the desire to obtain things? Wanting to be rich has ruined a lot of testimonies and embarrassed a lot of people. And even worse, it has ruined families and created missed opportunities for children and spouses. It has created a terrible testimony inside the, off inside the office or the job situation. Uh, your desire to attain more, have you been able to put that away from yourself, that you need to have more? You can see as the Apostle Paul just circles back around again, it makes it very clear that these are the issues. Now look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and we started with this today, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's your fifth question. Have you been able to subdue the worry associated with a possible loss of your material things? Hanging on to things produces a lot of opportunity for sorrow. Have you been able to put that away from yourself? That if you lost everything, like many Americans have done over the last four weeks, is that a terror to you, or, or was your security always in the Lord and you know that he's going to take care of you? Now look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here's your sixth question. Have you been able to divorce your identity from your ability to make wealth? And connect this one to it. Disconnect your sense of well-being from your bank account balance. Have you been able to do that? Are you looking at your bank investment balance pretty often? Are you spending a lot of time thinking about how you'll spend it when you retire or what you're going to do with some certain thing that you have? Has that become one of the main things that you think about? When you think about and esteem your own value, is it directly connected to your ability to make wealth or what you've already made or how big your bank account or portfolio might be? Is your esteem of yourself and your ability to project yourself on people connected to those things? Is your sense of security then connected to your bank account? So as your portfolio shrank over the last four weeks, as your bank account perhaps is shrinking now, as you're buying more things and having to take care of more things, is your security and your sense of security going down? Do you find yourself worrying more then? Those are really the issues. I look at verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's question seven for you, beloved. Do you share what you have consistently, generously, and sacrificially? And I'm not talking about out of your abundance. Not just when you're doing really well. Not when you've received a big bonus or some boon to your finances and now you're feeling generous. And it's hard to answer that question honestly, isn't it? But given the statistics we read last week, really give us our answer, doesn't it? 50% of believers who attend evangelical churches give nothing. The average giving is about 2% across the board in evangelical churches, about 2% of income. People spend four times more in interest retiring debt than they do in giving. So it's a tough one, but I think an important barometer of where we are. Do you share what you have consistently, generously, and sacrificially? And then look at verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Here's question eight. Do you believe that giving generously, consistently, and sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have? And you can answer that question very easily by looking at what you do with what you have. Because, because Scripture clearly says in many places that this kind of lifestyle leads to an abundant life. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, it's all over, but I'll just give you a few highlights. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay for his good deeds. So here's the question. Does the Lord keep track of what we do with what we have? Most definitely, in particular here, and there will be an accounting, just like our illustration we looked at a, a few minutes ago appears to say. How about Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24? There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there's one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be water. There's, these observations seem incongruent, don't they? But this is how the kingdom works. And so the question is very valid. Do you believe giving consistently, generously, sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have? As Paul clearly tells Timothy to make sure the Ephesian church knows 
And it's not just in the Old Testament. And we're going to see these passages in the future, but I just want to look, uh, let you look at them now, just give a little foreshadow of where we're headed. But 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, tell us this. Now I say, this I say, Paul says, he who sows sparingly was also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully was also reap bountifully. So an agrarian illustration concerning the use of money. And it's just a very well-known fact. If you don't put very many seeds in the ground, you're not going to get very many plants to grow. And so he uses that to illustrate what it looks like to give generously. Verse 7 says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. So there's a bunch of illustration, a bunch of uh, important principles here. We won't go through them. But just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then mark this, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So the same grace as in the Macedonian churches where they had very little and they give what they were able and then above what they were able. And they begged Paul for the opportunity to be part of it. So... Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, it's a very broad path that's being cut here. All sufficiency in everything and make all grace abound to you so that you may have an abundance for every good deed. What's the point of the passage? In being generous, are then you you somehow depleted and you have nothing? No. The Lord looks at that generosity and then recompenses that back to you. And we're going to see how clearly he does that over and over again. But here's the thing. If God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, and you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully, see. And if this is the case, and it is the case, then this should perhaps, I want you to mark this and see if this even resonates at all with you. This should perhaps be the most popular and abundant type of worship that we do. And when we come in our services when we're together and we say we're going to now worship and giving, it says it usually in your bulletin every week, we're going to worship and giving. We really mean that because it's part of the worship that we do. We give up a portion of what God has given us and it recognizes by our giving and by our generosity that we recognize everything we have came from him anyway. And we're putting to work these types of things. One who's gracious lends to the Lord, the Lord will repay him. The one who scatters increases all the more. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But do as you purpose in your heart and don't do it grudgingly or because somebody's making you do it. But God loves a cheerful giver. And because he's able to make all grace abound to you, you'll always have all sufficiency. See, you recognize that when you worship. And so if we really understood that, if we really understood this number eight, giving consistently, generously, and sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have, then if we really believed it, it would be our favorite part of being part of the local church, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you agree? If we truly believed in the remarkable generosity of God, if we truly understood and acted on the fact that he is actively involved in accounting for what he's loaned us and how we're using it. And his ability then to return what we give in abundance is very clear, then it would be our favorite part. And we're going to get to all of that. But these are important questions, not ones that are easily answered, not ones perhaps you want to answer in the presence of anyone else. And here's the thing. If you answered no to any of those questions or you were unsure about how to answer any of those questions, do you agree with God that everything you possess comes from him? 
would you be content with just the basic necessities of life? If your situation will never change from how it is now, are you okay with that? Have you been able to put away from yourself the desire to obtain more and more? Have you been able to subdue the worry associated with the possible loss of everything that you have? Have you been able to divorce your identity from your ability to make wealth and disconnect your sense of well-being from your bank account balance? Do you share what you have consistently, generously, and sacrificially? Do you believe that giving generously, consistently, and, and uh, sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have? See, if you answered no to any of those questions, Thank you for being honest. And a no answer indicates that you may love money. Your first response is you read that your character be free from the love of money. Most people say, I don't love money. And yet when we get to these things that really the Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that they understood, then those questions become very severe sometimes in nature. And next time we get together, next week we're going to look at a Mother's Day kind of message, but next time we get together, we're going to look at some others in the Word of God who had to answer no to those questions, and then we're able to see that was an error, and then ask for forgiveness. Because you have to be able to recognize, as we said earlier, that those attitudes are sinful. And God has a better plan for you than perhaps the one you're acting on now. So I'd like you to bow with me, if you would, as we desire to really kind of close our time out together. And I'd like you to kind of evaluate some of the things we talked about. I'd like you to kind of bring those before the Lord, wherever you are, just in the privacy of your own mind. Begin to evaluate really what kind of things you set up in your life, what things really make you feel secure, and then begin to give those things to Him because He has a much better plan for your life than that pattern of behavior. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to open your Word again, to see a sort of clear teaching to Timothy, to the church, to those who have things, and then some important questions to answer. And Lord, it would be our desire to be able to say yes to those eight questions, but we know that this is a struggle, and you know as well. And when your son came, he spent more time talking about material things than heaven and hell combined. He understood the draw, understood the that these things are always in front of us and what they do to us and how the culture uses it. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we'll be able to begin to answer these questions correctly. Help us to begin to change how we manage what we have. And if we've, if we've up until now been spending more than is coming in, we have huge credit card debt. Help us to confess to you that what we did there was sinful and then make a plan to begin to pay it back along with sharing what we have, being sacrificial and generous and really aligning our finances with how you would have them be aligned and then we'll find that you're in the middle of what we do with what we have and when you're in the middle of it you can make all grace abound to us and that we'll have all sufficiency for everything it'll be amazing how you begin to act when we do what we should with what we have I pray for our young folk, our young people, some of our young marrieds and singles who 
All right, this may be the first time they've heard some of this. Lord, I pray that you'll establish good patterns of behavior that you may be able to use them in a very significant way with what you've loaned them. And that they'll learn to rely on you and that their security will come from what you have and the fact that everything comes from you and whether they have a lot or a little, they can be content. And they're not going to be worried about the loss of everything because their security was never there. And for those who are older, Father, who perhaps have put themselves in a position where they're in huge debt and they've lived beyond their means, I pray that you'll be able to give them clarity about what to do about that and begin to work to rectify that situation, live within their means. Not longing for more, but instead being satisfied with what you've given and you're able to abound still there. So these are our prayers, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, we know there are more things that you're addressing right now. So. We are grateful that you're actively involved here, that your son walks among the churches and is walking among this one. Help us to be found faithful. Help us bring our lives in conformity as you desire for us to. It's the reason why the instructions here, there could be problems, and we can, uh, by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word, begin to address them. So we thank you for all of that, the work that you're doing amongst us. We thank you for uh, the protection you've provided uh, most in our church from losing jobs and losing uh, income and you still continue to provide and Lord, we're so grateful for that it's not an accident make us aware how we can help others who are less fortunate around us and thus make the gospel look wonderful Lord I pray again that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked way you will hear from heaven forgive our sin and heal our land please heal our land Father you can do this at any time that you want I pray that we'll learn the lessons we need to learn Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake.